0: Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tusco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 123 on Hans Holbein and his art. I still want to remind you about TudorCon, which is coming up in about four and a half months, five months, October 2019, the world's first ever TudorCon. We're going to gather at a newly restored winery adjacent to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair in Mannheim, Pennsylvania, and we're going to have three days of merriment, learning, feasting, and entertainment. The weekend is going to kick off on Friday the 18th with a welcoming party with refreshments, period entertainment, dancing, and games. Costumes are definitely incredible encouraged. On Saturday, we're going to have a full day of learning from some of the leading speakers. You can see the list of speakers as it's getting finalized now on the website. On Sunday morning, we're going to reconvene for a morning of talks, followed by a medieval feast on the feasting grounds of the Renaissance Fair with private entertainment and then time to spend at the fair before calling it a weekend. So we're going to meet lots of new friends, other people who are Tudor history enthusiasts, just like us. We're going to learn together. We're going to meet people from all over the country and even the world and have this wonderful weekend of new friendships and social learning and bonding over our shared love of Tudor history. And we're also going to meet some of our favorite bloggers and authors and podcasters. You can see the Complete list of the speakers at Englandcast.com/slash TutorCon 2019. You can also go to tutorcon.info that forwards to it. So tutorcon.info or englandcast.com slash tutorcon twenty nineteen. Um, we only have about 120 seats total that we're selling, and we've already sold over half of that. So you definitely want to get your tickets soon so that we don't sell out because you know you're gonna be missing out on it, right? We also have this is really super important, we also have a digital ticket. So if you can't come in person, you can still watch all the talks live, we're going to have special interviews for people who are watching live through the Facebook group and through streaming, you're going to get recordings of all of the talks, and you're going to get the same swag bag that the in person attendees receive as well. So you can get the digital ticket or come in person. Either way, TutorCon.info for all of the details. Okay, so now let's talk about art. In this episode, I want to look at Hans Holbein. I've actually done several shows on Tudor art, including one on portraits and propaganda, which remains one of the most popular shows that I have. And I'll link to all of the various art shows in the show notes for this episode. And you can check that out at englandcast.com slash Holbein englandcast.com slash Holbein. Also, you're going to want to check out the show notes for this episode because I've got a lot of paintings that I talk about, and you're probably going to want to look at them, especially the Coverdale, the Miles Coverdale Bible. You're going to want to definitely look at that. It's fascinating. So englandcast.com slash Holbein for all of your show notes. Given that I've talked about art, why would I want to do a show just on Holbein? Because I would be remiss in not doing a show devoted to Holbein, given the fact that many historians and art historians believe that the Tudor period is the bright, famous light that it is largely because of Holbein. In other words, Holbein made the Tudor court. He didn't just document it, but he actually made it. So who was Hans Holbein? Well, first of all, he was Hans Holbein the Younger, which meant that there was a senior, and that would, of course, be his father. Hans Holbein the Younger was born in Augsburg in 1497. He had a brother, Ambrosius, and together these two boys learned craftsmanship and artistry from their father. Augsburg was part of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. It was a very wealthy town, and there was plenty of work for a good artist, especially a good artist who had other skills. Hans Holbein Sr. was also a goldsmith, he was a goldsmith designer and he designed stained glass. So little Hans Jr. and his brother also learned how to do illustrations for printed books during this period. And that just goes to show how important the medium of the printing press and of printed materials in general was going to become. This is right at the period where the printing press is starting to really take off. And the Holbein rec- family recognized that as a source of potential income. So from here on out in our story, I'm just going to call him Hans Holbein because he leaves his father and he moves to Basel with his brother. Basel was a hub of the printing world at this time, which shows again that the brothers Holbein may have wanted to pursue a career in Illustrating books. Here in Basel, they designed prints, they painted outdoor murals, and also designed stained glass. One of Holbein's most famous pieces from this period was a series of woodcut prints called The Dance of Death, where you see Death, which is a skeleton, escorting people from the state of the living onto the next phase. There are some kind of cheeky references. For example, Death leads a rich merchant off. He actually takes the man's money first and then comes back for the man. Holbein also painted religious icons while in Basel, and it was in Basel where he was introduced to Erasmus, and it was Erasmus who paved the way for him to come to England. Sometime around 1519, his brother Ambrosius died, and Hans Holbein was on his own. So Erasmus becomes a supporter of his work, commissioning him to paint several portraits. One of these portraits from 1523 was especially impressive. It showed Holbein's ability, not just in making his subjects seem so lifelike and bringing them to life, but also showing the way he could paint objects and details in the background. A copy of the Erasmus portrait is in the National Portrait Gallery in London, and it shows just how skilled Holbein was with painting things like Roman columns and stone decorations as well as other objects in the background. The reason why it's a copy in the National Portrait Gallery is because Holbein made several copies of the work which he sent to England ahead of him with a letter of introduction that Erasmus wrote to both his good friends Thomas More and then also to Archbishop Wareham. So Holbein shows up in England in the fall of 1526, and he stays with Thomas More. Thomas More, of course, becomes one of his biggest supporters. Of course, Holbein wasn't to know this, but he was walking into a world of drama. This was right at the period where Henry was falling in love with Anne Boleyn. England was also shifting alliances from supporting the Holy Roman Empire to becoming more friendly with France. This is in part because Charles V had defeated France in a battle around 1525 and didn't share any of the credit with Henry. And Henry got mad and threw his toys and said, okay, I'm going to be friends with France now. And so power started to shift again to Henry and Francis being allies and then fighting against the emperor. Henry's friendship with France is important in the life of Hans Holbein at this period because it gave him his first job in England. Henry and Francis are going to sign a treaty commemorating their alliance. And to celebrate, they had a joust and pageants. This was along the lines of the very famous Field of Cloth of Gold Summit that had been held in 1520. There was a newly built banqueting house at Greenwich and jousts and pageants. Princess Mary was summoned to court in the spring of 1527 to be inspected by French ambassadors with an eye on arranging a marriage for her. And in that new banqueting house, Henry entertained his French counterparts. So in that new banqueting house, there was scenery that had been painted, especially for the event. There were scenes depicting Henry's military prowess and other scenes designed just to impress the French at how important Henry was. And who painted that scenery? Well, Thomas More's brother-in-law was one of the artists who painted it, but also Hans Holbein was one of the artists who painted it. Sadly, the scenery was only temporary, it was torn down after the event, so we have nothing left of Holbein's first English work. But the person who was the master of the revels and of the pageants and jousts who was coordinating all of this was Henry Guilford he noticed Holbein and commissioned a portrait from him. This was then followed by commissions from Thomas More, both for a portrait of More on his own and a life-size portrait of his entire family at home in Chelsea. Holbein also painted Archbishop Wareham during this time. Holbein really wanted to be a court painter, similarly to Leonardo da Vinci, who went to France and was the court painter for Francis I. Thomas More was worried that there might not be enough work for Holbein in England. He wrote a letter to Erasmus saying that Holbein was a wonderful painter, but he was afraid that he wouldn't much like England, given that there really wasn't much portraiture being done at the time. Art in England during this period centered around tapestries and decorative arts, but not so much portraiture though some historians speculate that this is simply down to the fact that England didn't have a good portraitist at this period. So it wasn't necessarily that they didn't like it. It's just they didn't have the opportunity to like it. Either way, Holbein went back to Basel, he had to handle some of his citizenship forms, he had to go back every two years to keep his citizenship in Basel going. And it was during this time when he began to see the effects of the Reformation more directly. He likely learned a lesson here that he had to become adaptable if he wanted to become a successful artist. The religious images and iconography that he had painted a decade before were being torn down and destroyed by Lutherans. When Holbein returned to England in 1532, it was with the aim of being Henry's personal painter, and he had already decided by that point that he was going to be adaptable and keep his head. It was important to make that decision because right around then his patron Thomas More was struggling with Henry's impending divorce and his decree that he was the head of the church in England. So Holbein losing his patron began to cultivate a relationship with Thomas Cromwell and the Boleyn family. We have the very famous portrait that he painted of Thomas Cromwell showing us just how that relationship went. We also have one of the most controversial drawings of Anne Boleyn. It's a hand sketch drawing of Anne in a nightgown and it's not at all flattering. In fact, it shows a double chin and her nose is really quite crooked. Some people say that there's no way that this could actually be Anne. She looks older than her years and it's just really not flattering. But most art historians agree that it is Anne and it demonstrates just how close Holbein was with the Boleyn family that he would be allowed to make such a drawing, which was likely for Henry's eyes alone. Holbein also did more public design work for Anne, including tableware and designs for pageants for her coronation. But it's his portraits of Henry during the mid-1530s that really made his name and are the lens through which we view Tudor history today. Henry used his portraits to send them abroad to diplomats and as gifts to other monarchs and as a statement about his power back home. Having someone who could paint those portraits in a way that showed him in the best and strongest light was really attractive to him. So the most famous of these portraits would be the Whitehall Palace mural. It doesn't exist any longer. It was destroyed in a fire, but there are smaller copies of it. So we know what it looked like. It was four life-size figures. It was in the privy chamber and and it included a life-size portrait of Henry VIII facing fully frontwards, looking right at you. In the episode I did a few years ago on portraits and propaganda, I talked a lot about this portrait and the statement that Henry was making by looking straight at the viewer. It just wasn't done at this time. Portraits were done from the side, and ambassadors commented on how unseemly it was, and normal people trembled when they saw it. It was so lifelike. Completing the painting were Henry's parents, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, and Henry's third wife, Jane, whose role when this painting was made in 1537 was especially important given that she would give birth and die giving birth to the future heir. So in the painting, they're all standing around a stone column that bears an inscription that reflects Henry's new view of himself as a sovereign ruler, and the way he grew to see himself, and also his role as the head of the church in England. The inscription talked about how Henry's father had established the dynasty through his victory in the Wars of the Roses, and how Henry himself then got rid of his evil counselors and sent the Pope packing back to Rome, bringing the true religion to England. It was his idea that Henry was bringing the true religion to England that he wanted to really play up, and we see this as well as in the front title page of the Coverdale Bible. In this Bible, which was the first English Bible to be brought to England with the King's approval, published in 1535, we see a cover image by Holbein. So there are about 80 copies or so of the Coverdale Bible left. So we have a really good sense of this image and what Henry was trying to say, which was that he was the supreme head of the church. He was given that right by God himself, and he was the one who could bestow the word of God on his own country. So the image shows Henry sitting directly underneath God himself. Thomas Cromwell is standing behind the bishops, the next level down, kind of pushing them forward to receive the word of God directly from Henry. They then pass it down through the ranks of parish priests and parish churches to their regular people on the street who are just thrilled and grateful and yelling out, Viva Rex, long live the king. And it's interesting that those speech bubbles say, Viva Rex, like long live the king on the front of a Bible. Right? It's not something that to our modern ears seems like something that we would see, but for Henry, he was really showing this message that he was the one in charge of putting out the Word of God. But of course, it's the portraits of other individuals that made Holbein so famous. Henry VIII also had another painter, Lucas Horenbaut, who specialized in miniatures. Holbein also did paint miniatures. One of Anne of Cleves was designed for Henry to carry around as he awaited the arrival of his new bride. And another of Solomon and Sheba shows Henry VIII as Solomon receiving homage from the Queen of Sheba. Holbein painted commercially doing miniatures of people outside the court, including merchants and others who were just visiting London or the court on business. He traveled widely for Henry, especially when Henry was searching for his fourth wife. It's his painting of Christina of Denmark, the 16-year-old widowed Duchess of Milan, that captivated Henry so much so that even after she rejected him, famously saying that if she had two heads, she'd be happy to give one to Henry, he still kept the portrait. But the painting that caused the most drama, of course, was Anne of Cleves. No one at the time thought that Holbein had misrepresented Anne. It's important to know that even Henry didn't punish Holbein, which one might assume that he would have if the painting had been really off, the same way Cromwell was punished. But other portraits of Anne done from the side do show a much more crooked nose and features that you just don't see when you look at her from the front, the way Holbein painted her in both the main portrait and the miniature. So most art historians now agree that the portrait of Anne was much more flattering because it was done from the front and that that captivated Henry. But Anne did look like that when you looked at her from the front. It's just that you don't just look at someone from the front when you live with them. Another very famous work of Holbein's is The Ambassadors, which is perhaps the most famous because of the strange skull that Holbein painted in the bottom. It looks just like a streak of white paint when you look at it from the front, but you, when you go around the side and look up from the corner, it's clearly a skull. Portraits at this time tended to have objects in that showed the mortality of the person sitting there. It was a reminder that the painting might last for a long time, but the flesh itself would decay. The ambassadors, which is actually of the French ambassador and also an unconsecrated French bishop, is filled with symbolism, including showing the bishop next to a Lutheran hymn book and globes highlighting French possessions. More than any other portraitist, Holbein wanted to give background information and context on the people that he painted, and you really see that in the ambassadors like in no other work. And that's partially why it's so famous. So, of course, soon after the Anne of Cleves debacle, Hans Holbein wasn't really alive that much longer. He died in 1543 in a plague epidemic in London. So how was he remembered even after he died? His paintings continued to be popular, but interestingly, it wasn't always clear that people understood the importance of the person who painted them. Portraitists who followed Holbein didn't immediately adopt his style. If you look at the lifelessness of many Elizabethan portraits, you'll see that. And when Archbishop Matthew Parker had a painting of Archbishop Wareham, he said that he really loved the painting, and it was done by an unknown painter in the Netherlands. So less than 50 years after this painting by Hans Holbein had been done, the artist had largely been forgotten. Still, of course, today, he is recognized as the leading portraitist of his time and someone who raised art at the English court up and even created what we know of the Tudor court. So if you want to dig deeper into the life of Hans Holbein, there's a video. If you have Amazon Prime, it's free included in your Prime video. It's called Holbein, Eyes of the Tudor Court. And there are some really good books that look at his life and his masterpieces in the context of his life. So I've got links to all of that, as well as some other sources and articles that I used on the website at englandcast.com slash Holbein. And definitely check it out, if for no other reason than to look at the Coverdale Bible frontispiece. It's amazing. So you can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016 Tesco or through Twitter at Tesco or facebook.com slash Englandcast. Let me know if you have any questions or if you have any show ideas. I love hearing from people. And remember, you can get your TudorCon tickets at tutorcon.info and I cannot wait to party with you like it's 1509. <laughs> in october so tutorcon.info for more on that I hope you enjoyed this episode on Hans Holbein and I will be back in another two weeks or so have a great couple of weeks bye blow sweating northern wind blau, blau, blau. I a in barbreek, on seek.